Have you ever walked into um, glass full whack, like a perfect sheet of glass? No, I can't say I have. I did that in Japan. You're drunk in this amazing restaurant we're in. I have never felt pain like it. It was, and I had like a couple of whiskeys with the wife, and I was thinking, this is the best. Night I would of my have paid and good I went money full to watch whack that. Into my nose. Us, oh, unbelievable, you really, you really painful. Hit it, hit it yeah, 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 yeah. I was in, I was in agony for <laughs> for 24 hours. Um, Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I am Andy Orion. Alongside me is Pippa, Pippa Stern. <laughs> get my name I right. can't even Thanks get your name. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, you know, I mean, I've only practiced it a million times. And we're, today we it are hurts. joined it by really uh, <laughs> we, today we are joined by Robin Butler. Hello, Robin. Hi, Andy. How you doing? Very good. Robin is a partner and head of impact at Sturgeon Capital, a London-based VC investing in frontier and emerging market startups that are solving the key problems affecting the day-to-day lives of businesses and consumers. How exciting. And Robin, let's just start with the question of what's keeping you up at night? What's bothering you at the moment in the world? In my world, oh, we're a year after the invasion of invasion of Ukraine and um, those knock-on effects, particularly in these emerging markets, the impact on currency devaluation, rising price of oil, uh, inflation rates in each of these countries is is putting a lot of pressure not only on the economies but also uh, also on the societies. Um, you pick out a country like Pakistan in particular, not only have they had the economic challenges, but they had the floods last year and sort of August September uh, displace tens of tens of millions of people. So those are those are some of the things that are that are keeping me up at night at the moment those sort of ex-soviet territories countries are they nervous does this make them nervous yeah it does make them nervous i mean it's you don't have to look far georgia still has two two parts of its country that is occupied by russia and has been since 2008 kazakhstan gets pretty nervous uh, a while ago i think it was in the early 2000s putin made a comment along the lines that he didn't see kazakhstan as being a real country that made the kazakhs pretty nervous but if putin says it you would be like absolutely terrified yeah you? it's 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 not much of an empty threat i mean he's shown that he's shown that when he says something like that luckily he's he's busy uh, busy at the moment or Lucky, lucky for these countries anyway, but not uh, for Ukraine. But. Not for Ukraine, and they're, they're, they're certainly nervous. I mean, any any of the Eastern European ones, the Baltic states, um, Central Asia as well, are yeah, they're they're nervous, but they are economically beholden and culturally very very strongly linked to Russia. So it isn't like they can just just turn away and and and, and do what they want. Um, it's their largest trading partner. Uh, Uzbekistan has five million people working in Russia, sending back seven eight billion dollars worth of remittances every year so th- they can't just cut ties and say oh it's fine we'll just work with the US and Europe or India or, or someone else they are they they are stuck to a degree with with Russia and with and with China yeah there's a bunch of countries that are sort of there aren't they we're sort of trying to divide the role w- world there's a sort of you know you're on the goody side or the baddie side isn't there and then there's countries that are just totally interlinked taking a step back from what you do i mean unusually for a, a london based vc you don't expect people to come to you as it were you're slightly looking abroad and and looking you know for opportunities there and that and that is important to you because yeah, I mean, we're we're investing in in uh, Central Asia and, and South Asia, mainly Bangladesh and Pakistan, and and looking for 
businesses that are solving those those problems domestically. So not say a uh, an Uzbek company that's trying to build a, a piece of software or technology for the US or for the UK, but someone that's that's building something to solve a, a problem locally because the way the the economies and societies are structured is still very offline. So it's paper, it's Excel. Uh, but what you've had in the last five to ten years is a a, a massive increase in the number of smartphones and the level of internet penetration. And that's really the kind of foundations on which you can build technology businesses. And the advantage of those technology businesses, as, as we all know, is they're far more efficient. They enable people to, to kind of grow their businesses, to, 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 to access new products and, and new services. Um, so why is, why is it important that we're doing that? Because we are, as well as obviously trying, trying to make money for, for ourselves and for our investors, we're also having a very positive impact on, on the countries that we're investing in. And do you have a particular kind of type of investor? I mean, who are these people that think, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll go with Sturgeon Capital. I want my money utilised in Uzbekistan or Pakistan. Or- um, they are, uh, I'd say, say many of them are as um, eclectic in background as, as, as we are. Uh, a, a lot of them are, say, family offices or high net worth individuals that have, have made money in other emerging markets. So they've seen they, they understand the opportunity, they understand the risks as well. I mean, they're trying to sell to uh, a European-based investor that's never really invested in or worked outside of Europe. He, trying to explain the risks of Pakistan or Bangladesh or Central Asia is is, is very difficult, whereas someone who's, who's done business there, has made money there, and can understand that while risks are higher, actually the potential, the potential uh, rewards are higher as well. You, you immediately start thinking about the sort of issues like um, the Bribery Act and stuff. How do you ring fence yourself from the impossibility of a country that has lots of corruption or does things in a way that basically the British law says you can't touch it, sort of thing? Yeah, I mean that's uh, that, that risk is 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 much higher in these countries, but I think where. What's different about maybe what we do versus what traditionally was done on more on the private equity side? If you were investing in in, in private equity in these countries, you were investing in uh, natural resources, manufacturing. There are a lot of vested interests there. I mean, digging gold out of the ground is complex, but you dig it out, you sell it, it has a value. You're a bit more efficient, a bit less efficient. It doesn't really matter. So, a lot of fingers get get stuck in those pies, and you get expropriated on a pretty regular basis. Right, right. Whereas these kind of early stage companies, you're building it from from nothing. Um, it requires a different kind of mentality and approach, which typically that sort of government official doesn't have, doesn't understand, doesn't necessarily see the value in it to begin with, and and a lot of that value is intangible. So if if they come in and try and expropriate it, now this is not a foolproof protection, but you are operating with businesses that if if they come in and expropriate it and everyone leaves, that business will stop working. Um, and the, the, so that there isn't a kind of residual, there is or the residual value that they could take uh, or that they would try and sort of uh, take take bribes for is is much lower. How easy is it in some of these countries to actually set up? It massively varies. Some some countries, actually Georgia and, and Kazakhstan, are some of the easiest places in the world to set up businesses. Really, they've go and see Barry. <laughs> give him a tenner. <laughs> uh, in Georgia, you can do it pretty much all online, um, and it takes a day, two days. Kazakhstan's right. a, a similar. So they don't have any capital kind of requirement or anything. Uh, it depends on the sort of structure you're using, but it, it's actually remarkably simple. And I don't think they publish it anymore. But in the ease of doing business, which 
countries could game and they and they did game, but actually these these I think Georgia came in the top ten, Kazakhstan wow. was, was similar as well. And a lot of that was by digitalizing the the processes and because they understood that anything that happened offline was an opportunity for corruption. Um, and that corruption was getting in the way of doing business. So they moved try you have tried to move a lot of things online so that there isn't a person between you and your mm. application. So effectively, I think London is the largest VC market outside of the US, my understanding is. And so therefore, you can go to these companies that are in these um, emerging markets that are probably doing something a bit new that therefore isn't necessarily attached to anything particularly or heavily regulated, as it were. So it's um, a tool that you can come in. You can bring that London checkbook to them to give them extra value, as it were. Um, and then I assume you know you're 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 just requiring. Do you require them to do anything here? You you just want them to be successful in their home market. Do you um, want them to be successful in their home market, in neighbouring markets, in in similar markets? Uh, some some have solutions and and software that that, that could be transferred to more de- developed markets, but the dynamics very different. I mean, the cost of doing business in the UK or US is ten to hundred times more than it is in a market like Uzbekistan. Um, so if you want to go as an Uzbek company to say go to the US, you're going you're, you're gonna to need a lot more money, you face a lot more competition, your sales process is, is very different. So we tend to focus on those companies that are building for their markets. Um, they, they usually have an international hold code, so that's part of a way of kind of de-risking uh, or, or, or mitigating the local legal legal environment because you're as a foreigner you're you're almost certainly going to lose um, if if you if you're even allowed a, uh, even allowed a, a court case but with that international hold co you are you, you are changing that dynamic. It's really interesting though thinking about online being a place where you can actually control a bit more the the risk of corruption because you know we we normally in the West we have this attitude to online which is it's dangerous it's you know you're more likely to get screwed etc cetera, etc cetera. but actually it's really interesting to flip it around and say because there's no you know kind of individuals involved it's actually less open to corruption yeah i mean i guess if you go down the sort of the um the long-term vision of something like web3 is that you are taking out any kind of intermediaries and it's all that sort of blockchain ledger ledger based technology that uh can can eliminate any potential for for, for corruption I, we're a long way away from uh, a long way away from that but is the corruption if if and where it exists in 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 the uk is We've changed it to become sort of official-sounding payments that you need yes. to make to the local council to get to get approval for uh, planning permission or something like that. Now in Uzbekistan, that's still just a cash payment. It doesn't have a formal name. It hasn't been put into a kind of system or, or processes. So when you're still in that informal society or that informal way of of collecting money, is actually shifting it to, to to digital does help reduce those kind of points of contact where where someone could could ask for money or, or try to take money. I mean, corruption. It's a bit like someone said to me, an old Italian guy said, "You know, the mafia weren't all bad, Andy. There were parts of Italy that were terribly badly run." And then what would happen is you would have a local leader who would start running the place better. And that becomes a, a mafia, as it were. And where, you know, when do you get that corruption? It's called a dictatorship, though. Then even benign dictatorships are still dictatorships, well, right? I don't know. I mean, a dictator suggests some sort of absolute power. They, they didn't necessarily have absolute power. But, I mean, you, you take a different example where bureaucracy is very inefficient. So when you've got a lot of people and bad old systems that are taking too slow, naturally it becomes, well, how do I jump the queue if I give you a bit more money? You know, it's, it's that sort of, you know, we, we're now in a 
state in the UK where everything's incredibly slow and there's no system no to, way jump. To, <laughs> no way yep. to jump. And I, I think that's something when you, if you speak to sort of politicians or, or people in, in emerging markets, I don't think as many of them today as maybe used to look at sort of democracy and say that seems like the best way of running things. They look at maybe a country like Singapore, which is an anomaly because of how small it is, but it has been phenomenally successful. Now that's not a democracy. Um, that's actually a very restrictive society on a lot of on a lot of freedoms, but you have complete business freedom. Um, it's very secure. It's very well run. I was there, I was there back in November. And he's you, you the, um, he's the odd one on the graph, you know. Every major leader with that much power it goes to their head and they become more and more controlling, whereas yeah. he's become more and more open and continues to do so. Yeah. But it's still like if you're um, caught with drugs in your system or on you, you're kicked out of the country forever. If, you, yeah. if, if, if you're local, you're executed. Uh, if you're international, you're kicked out within 24 hours. Like you go, it, They send you on a training thing, I think. You yeah. get like a, yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's severe. Yeah, anyway. I mean, it, but you have complete economic freedom. You can, you can do business. Um, you have the environment to do business there. But you, you accept that politically and, and sort of uh, personally certain, certain yeah. freedoms are restricted. I mean, the solution to corruption is multi-layered. It's education. It's a financial, you know, disparate, you know, the, the larger disparity between the rich and the poor, the more able you are to corrupt sort of thing. But I think what we're talking about was, you know, transparency, I guess without invasion of privacy is yeah is key is key to clearing that process up and, and moving everything digitally solves that you yeah know? but I mean one uh, an interesting example from the countries that we work in so Georgia uh, after the Rose Re- Rose Revolution in two thousand one two thousand and two Saakashvili who came to power uh, corruption then was endemic I mean the, the the country was a sort of kind of ma- mafia state and one of one of the worst forms of corruption were the um, transport police. And he he knew that there were maybe 10, 20% of them that were okay, but the rest were corrupt and were, were taking enormous amounts of bribes. So rather than try and figure it out, he said, look, you're all fired. I'm going to get rid of all of you. I'm sorry, I know some of you are good, but I'm going to get rid of all of you because I know the majority of you are bad. Hire a completely new and slightly and slim down professional uh, transport police force. Mm-hmm. Crime rates went down. Corruption obviously basically disappeared overnight. I mean, you started this with, you know, Ukraine and what the impact of that globally has been. And, um, you know, thankfully through you as well, um, you know, I have some Ukrainian clients and have done historically, and it's been fascinating watching them deal with everything. What do do you think you've learned from that? So we have two investments in Ukraine. And I think what it's it's shown me is that... um, the the kind of level of grit and determination that people can show in the face of extreme adversity. And it, it set the benchmark very high. I mean, one of the big questions for us when we're investing in businesses is kind of a, assessing the founders and their ability to, to handle... Tenacity. Yeah, tenacity, the, the trials and tribulations that they will face um, as they're building their business and, and uh, addressing the problems that, uh, that come up over time. And I mean, you, you couldn't imagine a more difficult situation than, than, than your country being invaded. And suddenly you're gone from running a business with a sort of happy workforce and things to having to take care of your employees, get them out of Ukraine, get them clear from uh, potential conflict zones. Presumably a number of them would have to be conscripted. So one of the co-founders of one of our portfolio companies uh, was conscripted, was wounded on the front line, is still serving in the armed forces in Ukraine at the moment, a year a year later. No, it's deep. You know, my, my uh, long-standing client is at an office out there. I mean, it's been fascinating. I mean, his line, what did he say to me the other day? And if you told me that I'd be buying machine guns online for the for, through my company account a year ago, I would have said <laughs> you're insane. But one of the main charities they give to out there, because if you've got a business out there and then you've got staff 
stuff out there, then you're so much more deeper involved in what's going on. Like you say, the men are, are fighting a lot of them. Some of their office manager wanted to go to war, but uh fiance I think had, had gone into the thing so she she didn't go in the end and I mean it's just sort of you know it's that insanity level but he says you know they bought a generator they have the Elon Musk satellite link yeah they take it across the border from Poland because you can't get anything delivered at the moment in Ukraine oh, Amazon's even given up I don't even know if Amazon's still rocking in Ukraine that would be impressive but you know it's become this almost community center it's just the way life changes you know yeah and I, it's a kind of an interesting question of how, how do you think the UK would respond, UK society would handle this because Ukrainians are very stoical. I think hats off to how Ukraine have responded, but it instills in you a very deep, you know, intrinsic emotion, I think a lot of us feel, which is territory, you know, we're mm. territorial animals, you know, you get in front of my space in a queue, you know, I'm, I'm some piece of my mind is currently dragging out that door and murdering you, you know. Um, yeah, but another piece of your mind it's, it's stops totting. you doing it because you're English. Thankfully. <laughs> What sort of sectors do you guys invest in then? Do you have specific kind of um, sectors that you say, yes, we'll do that, we'll do this kind of tech or that kind of tech? Or is it just generally anything that benefits the emerging economy? So um, our core focus is on uh, fin fintech solutions, uh, B2B software. So that's anything from HR management, inventory management, a lot of those things that we take for granted here and which which have been around for, for, for such a long time now that we, we don't even think about, but which they don't have at all, or um, marketplaces. So e-commerce, both B2B and B2C. Uh, we, we look at a lot of other businesses as well and, and we will invest in, in anything, but those are the kind of core ones, which if you like are some of those, the, the sort of first level of, of technology that needs to be built in order to then start moving to more kind of complex advanced solutions. But, but the advantage you have there is uh, you take something like banking, well, somewhere between 60 to 90% of people don't have a bank account, whereas everyone here has a bank wow. account. Um, so if you're well, 95, 99% or whatever, people Where have a bank account. Where are they putting their money? Under the, under yeah. the mattress. Under the mattress in cash. Um, um, and so when you come along as a sort of neobank, well, your sort of Monzo Revolut equivalent, when if you can convert someone to using you, you are their primary account. Whereas the yeah. challenge everyone has here is, I have my Halifax, my HSBC, my Barclays account. I set up a Monzo one because I kind of like it. The UX is and cool. And I use it and, on holiday. Yeah, yeah. and I, I get some yeah. kind of neat deal. But I still keep most of my money with Halifax, even though Monzo has the same license. I'm as protected with Monzo as I am with Halifax. I still keep most of my money there because I don't know. It's I've, I've been with them to... since I was like yeah. four years old or whatever. I had that little like paying in book and things, and so so I still have it. Whereas in in those markets you don't. So you have this kind of leapfrogging from offline transactions to online. And I mean, would you? It's a, it's a slight side point, but I I find it an interesting one. Would you say to a UK business to think about emerging markets as an expansion place, or is it really, you know, he's nowhere near ready, and it's just emerging markets off this really interesting, you know, deal flow, this really interesting pool? Um, the the challenge if you were coming from 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 the UK is your sort of cost base and your, and your pricing point will be so so different. Um, if you're used to selling to UK businesses or, or consumers who have a certain purchasing power, 
you, you you price your product at a certain level. You have your own cost base of engineers, of of salespeople, of support staff, who are maybe based in the UK. Maybe you've outsourced it to, to another country. But if you want to go and sell in sell in Uzbekistan, where GDP per capita is is five to ten percent of what it is in the UK, I, I could done what it is exactly off, yeah. off off the top of my head. You, you're going to struggle to match the the price that you want to sell something at to what they can afford to pay, and that's that's really the opportunity for local companies. So you have global leaders in a lot of these spaces. However, they don't have the localizations, they don't have the pricing point, they don't have the support to actually be successful in these in these emerging markets. And that's why the kind of local local champions, the local uh, the local success stories emerge. Okay. And to you as a as a fund, as an investor coming to do investment in this kind of space, what what is the attraction as an investor? There's obviously more risk, so there's more return. Is it as simple as that? Uh, yeah, if you if you break it down to that, yeah, it is it is is really it is really a function of a function of risk and return. Um, if you think about where what I think is is maybe a frustration with a lot of uh, a lot of technology companies I see being built in in the West at the moment is that they're. The, the sort of marginal benefit to their user is 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 tiny. It's it's maybe five ten percent because that person already uses technology. They already have something that that does the job, and maybe this is just making it a little bit better. Now, sometimes you get solutions which really are fundamentally changing how things work and and can have a much more significant impact. But that level of impact is really the value you're creating and the potential sort of value for for, for yourself as well. Whereas if you look at any kind of uh, vertical or industry in in in, in these emerging markets. Digital penetration is is sub sub one percent, um, pretty pretty much across the board. Now, is that going to go to five percent? Is it going to go to ten percent in the next ten years? Yes, I think it will. And that five ten x increase, that's really the value that you're capturing. And you're coming from a ba- such a low base, you can be thirty to fifty percent market share of that. Now, these are billion dollar industries in these countries, and that's the sort of size of business that you can build. Now, you have challenges around sort of the availability of funding. The time it takes to build those businesses is definitely longer than in these in developed markets because here we understand the value of technology and software and solutions. There you have to explain to people. However, the cost of acquiring people here is more because I already have a solution. So you really need to persuade me that the, the new one is the new the new one is better. Um, and there's yeah, so that's that's kind of where you're where where you're playing. You're saying, look, today there is essentially nothing. It was essentially happening offline. In the next 10 years, a significant portion of that is going to shift online at a very rapid rate. We are there to be investing in those leading businesses yeah. that, that capture that. And that will create a lot of a value for us as investors and for our investors. Is there a, is there a general sort of a bit of a brain drain? From all of these emerging market countries? Yeah. So there, there historically has been quite a lot of, drain, of, of brain drain. Interestingly, one of the things that is bringing people back is technology. Mm-hmm. So those uh, kind of individuals who worked in the US or UK at, at sort of leading lead, leading global tech companies have, have done well and, un, and understand, but part of it's a sort of nationalistic thing. We were talking about it earlier, of sort of wanting to go back to your country. I mean, in this case, it's not defended, but go back and build something for your own country. Maybe you've been successful enough that you're you're comfortable and, and you see the opportunity to take those skills and, and that kind of reputation. And, look, and your network. family's there and your ties are there. And your, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think you I certainly see it in, in Pakistan and in Bangladesh, in, in Central Asia as well. 
there's a lot of people who, who move abroad and are very successful and they, they come back and it's it's twofold. I think it's it's that family thing exactly as you say. That's where that's where the family is. And all of us, I think it's it's living in a totally different culture is while mm. it may be exhausting. Enjoyable. It's yeah, it's tiring. And, and you miss things. You miss the food, you miss the weather, even if it's maybe worse. I mean, you go abroad as English people and we, and we complain about how, how hot it is, and then we come back and we complain about how much it rains. Yeah. It's um, what we do best. Yeah. And then but then also it's like, oh well, maybe I can build something for for for, for my country. I think probably the international point is underneath it, there are these certain hubs, Singapore, London, you know, New York or Delaware inadvertently, um, that you that, that, that share certain things and it's access to capital is the key one that a lot of them, you know, and, and hence you're based in London and there are these hubs. So that forces you to somewhat have your holding company there and then all of them are kind of set up, UK, Singapore, Delaware Seacourt to be very attractive for doing that kind of thing. But then it forces you into that kind of international conversation, isn't it? So I would say to an emerging market one, if the CEO wanted to move to London, it's like, no, they should stay where the action is. But this, if it's going to be your holding company, is somewhere, yeah, you should come and hold proper board meetings, if that's, you know. Or put a different way, should I have my holding company in London or Singapore? It's like, well, where's easier for you to fly to? Yeah, I mean, kind of, and and it's uh, what you're really doing there is okay. You're you're a business operating in India, where, wherever you're operating, you to convince someone to invest in you, you've got to sell them on all the risks and the challenges of of, of your country. Now, if you can sell them on that, you don't want them then to have to get comfortable with, say, local legal risks in oh, Pakistan. 100%. Because there's, there's no way they're going to get comfortable with that. They're going to get their lawyers involved and it's just going to be red flag, red and flag, capital red, controls, red, red, red flag. Which exactly. is just like, well. So, and then you go, okay, I saw it. you don't want to create another headache. But if you tell them Singapore hold code, they go, oh, oh, easy. Yeah, I know. I know those. I understand those. The lawyer looks and goes, oh, brilliant. Yeah, fine. And actually, that's the number one piece of advice I would give to any of those emerging marketplaces. When you start your business, do not set up, set your first company up in the UK or Singapore, pick either, frankly, and then your subsidiary in your home country from day one. And if you do that, because you can't, you know, halfway down the road, you can't just take a company and stick a holding company in place internationally speaking, that's very likely to going to have consequences for shareholders somewhere. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I mean, that that is, to be honest, out of anything, if you want to make yourself attractive, whether it be Robin or the man on the moon, pick a few, a couple of places, Delaware Seacorp, London or Singapore, as, as places that have really set themselves up for that positioning that you could should be able to set up easily and make lots, lots of boring tax reasons, no withholding tax and stuff and then that that sort of helps yeah. you move along it makes a massive difference business without bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935 you can find us at oriclark.com do you think anything is bullshit in business I was I was think, thinking about this on the the, the way over, and it, the original thing comes from um, the the fact that on uh, LinkedIn, which I'm kind of a fan of LinkedIn. I've not heard many people go, oh, "I'm a fan of LinkedIn." Well, I like, I like from a work fr- fr- from a fr- fr- from and a work. That's what you get up to at weekends, isn't it? Yeah, it's the LinkedIn yeah, hours and hours of it. Um, no, but it, it's, it's 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 is you, you you can learn a lot, and it, it very kind of work work focused, and and pick up bits of information about whatever is is relevant, and you, you do get. 
a bit of an echo chamber because most people I'm connected to are involved in, in VC or emerging markets. But, but it's interesting for me. I, I learn a lot. Some of it's bits that I wouldn't pick up otherwise. Sometimes it gets me the kind of the access to the information. But there's now seems to be a shift towards people posting a lot of kind of personal stuff on there of sort of their stories and oh, journeys and challenges, which Oh, on the one hand, it's like okay, it's great, and maybe it's it's very helpful for you, but it's it's that sort of blurring of lines between the sort of social private life and and work life. And in the end, I think you you want to work in an environment or a location or a company and, and with people that you enjoy working with and that, that that you're happy working with. But in the end, it's it it's is a job. It is a job, and there needs to be some kind of delineation. I think we may be similar on this. Like what I liked about LinkedIn is. I have to develop a professional facade. I mean, I have to do that. Whether I'm a plumber or a teacher, whatever job I do, and some people have to wear a suit or they've got an outfit and that's their sort of armor they put on in the morning and it's a psychological thing and we go to work. You know, my, my point is we develop this, this, this front and it's very well defined. There's very old rules that sort of map out what is or isn't okay in a workplace. I mean, there's laws around employment. So yes, LinkedIn, you can also get sued. Yeah, yes. LinkedIn, suddenly I'm okay with it being public. I'm okay because that what I struggle with as an older person is my private life my private life why am I putting it online I don't understand like you know it feels sycophantic to run around the street saying have you seen this picture of my dog have you seen this picture of my dog because that's what it feels like when you post out into the wider world so I love LinkedIn for that framework so you're saying and I kind of agree what happens it starts getting taken away from you that it's more that I wouldn't expect to come in work and everyone have letters lying around of how their life's gone terribly bad or you know talk to HR about it and even HR has a limit we're not your psychologists we're your workplace but uh, you know and also I mean I I go to a women in business network group and their kind of communal online social contact place is Facebook and that drives me berserk partly because I'm not on Facebook I will never be on Facebook I therefore I can't join any of the you know, the kind of, I don't know what they do on Facebook, but whatever the meeting things are they do on Facebook, I can't join them because I'm not on Facebook. And I'm like, the obvious place for this conversation, we're all business people, we're together because we're all in business. Why are we not having this conversation on LinkedIn? So, <clears throat> this is where we're going to find out more about you, Robin. Uh, we're going to give you a list of questions to get to know you a little better. Five to ten seconds each per answer. Sure. Okay. We won't interrupt you. I won't. You may well. <laughs> it's like a Tourette's. Uh, D the music, please. Okay, let's go. Uh, what was your first job? Uh, first job was picking blackcurrants. Country? In any country? Uh, in Herefordshire in the UK. <laughs> Sorry, I can help you. What's your worst job? It wasn't the worst job. I, first year of university in the summer, I, I worked two jobs. I was working for a sort of Middle Eastern uh, consultancy kind of um, think tank and then working in a pub at night till like three o'clock in the morning. So that Which was, was worse? Uh, no, neither was worse. Combination. I, I enjoyed both, but mm. the combination of the two meant that sleep and everything kind of went out the window. Wow. So was, uh, that was a, yeah, that was probably the most difficult physically kind of job that I've, I've had. Favourite subjects at school? History. Mm. What's your special skill? What I said is I seem to be able to kind of get on with people pretty well um, in kind of from different countries and, and diff diff different parts of the world. Um, I, I enjoyed learning about who they are, where they come from, what they do. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? 
Uh, I my dad was in the army, and so I think uh, probably wanted to be a soldier for lack of any other imagination. Oh, your dad must have seemed so cool, and well, up until like eight. Sorry, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, uh, where, what did your parents want you to be? Uh, definitely not a soldier. <laughs> did they not? Uh, definitely not, mum. Well, you can get shot and killed, I suppose. That's that's very true, and I think for for mum having yeah, not many mums vote for their kids to be soldiers. No. no. Well, um, what did they want you to be there? Do you uh, I don't think there was any ever ex- any ever any expectation for a kind of particular happy. particular career. Happy. Yeah, that was certainly certainly. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, Mambo number five. Is it? That's unusual. Mambo number five. I kind of know that. Isn't that really... Anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, Office dogs, business or bullshit? Um, Have you put the, the headphones on? Yeah. Bullshit, you're saying quietly. No, I think I think uh, I've grown up with dogs, so business. Yes, nice. <laughs> have you have you ever been fired? Uh, no, I haven't. Touch Touchwood. Yet. Yet. And what's your vice? Uh, vice is usually doing everything to excess, um, particularly on the weekends. Oh, really? Is that <laughs> exercise or in the bedroom <laughs> department or something? At the weekends, me and the wife just. <laughs> So this is where you can give us 30 seconds on anything, your pitch, need to sell your car, whatever's going on, anything you want to tell us about. Um, no, look, if anyone anyone listening wants to kind of learn more about uh, what we're doing in emerging markets and that sort of thing, they can get in touch. And Robin, how do people actually get in touch with you? Can get in touch through through LinkedIn, might be the easiest way, or uh, they could get in touch by email, I, I don't know what, uh, yeah, LinkedIn's probably probably the easiest one. So there, that's it. There you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Uh, We will be back for another episode on Thursday. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you, Dee. Uh, Until then, it's ciao.